Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colograph. Hi there, I'm Violet Moller. In this episode, we are off to glorious ancient Rome and the last days of Augustus. In 1995, Oxford University Press began publishing a new series of books called Very Short Introductions, which they build as stimulating ways into new subjects. 26 years on, and there are now over 350 titles, providing readers with expert guides to subjects as diverse as algebra, chaos, the Vikings and Shakespeare's comedies. They are an incomparable jumping off point for anyone embarking on a new topic, small enough to slip into your pocket, but sure to give you a clear overview. As today's guest, Professor Llewellyn Morgan explains, they are extremely difficult to write as they require huge amounts of information to be distilled down into a slim, concise volume. Llewellyn is the author of the recently published Very Short Introduction to Ovid. So today we're setting off on a journey to ancient Rome at a crucial moment in its history, the early 1st century AD. The golden age of Augustus was drawing to a close as the great emperor reached the end of his life at the impressive age of 75. He had presided over a hugely successful period in Roman history, during which his achievement of the Pax Romana enabled culture to flourish on an unprecedented scale. Llewellyn Morgan is a scholar of Roman literature at Brasenose College, Oxford, and has written numerous articles on various aspects of Roman poetry, primarily focusing on the works of Virgil, Horace and Ovid. Morgan has been teaching at the University of Oxford, for 20 years. I'd like to welcome you to Travels Through Time, Llewellyn. Thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure. Today we're going to be going back to um, the golden age of Augustus and the Roman Empire. And uh, we're going to talk about your book, which is Ovid, a very short introduction. And before we get into the actual history, I wondered if you'd like to tell us a bit about this series, um, which I believe is produced by Oxford University Press, because it's it's an absolutely brilliant way into any subjects. And I, I think that there's 650 volumes now on subjects that are just so diverse so can you just tell us a little bit about it please yeah it's it's a brilliant little series which which i've used a a lot when i've i've sort of needed to have um a rapid introduction to a particular uh subject uh, i remember i was reading one on um uh, tibetan buddhism at, at some stage i'm not sure whether that was the one that that made me sort of contact um oup and say um would you would you like any any classical subjects that you'd <laughs> you'd like covered i mean it's a, it's a, it's a really good exercise from the point of view of the writer as well because you you need to know the subject quite deeply in, in order to um to sort of nutshell it if that's the expression sort of take take the essentials uh, out of it and it really forces you to kind of clarify what what the key issues are in in in, in relation to particular texts or particular uh, authors i wouldn't necessarily encourage anybody to read my um my book on ovid but do read if you've got any interest in the subjects that are covered by the very short introductions, do do get into them because they're, they're fantastic. They're really yeah, they're very useful. I, I've I've got the very short introduction to the history of astronomy on my desk at the moment, and it's been invaluable. Um, okay, wonderful. Well, let's um, let's make start making our way back to ancient Rome, and we're going back to the first century AD. And I was wondering if you could just explain a bit about the political situation in Rome. There's been a lot of changes. Um, Augustus is is the emperor or has been the emperor. So can you just set that up for us and describe what it would have been like? Yes. Okay. So Augustus has been in power for quite a long time. In fact, a significantly long time, much longer than people would have expected because he was quite a a sickly um, uh, individual for most of his life. He's managed to transform Rome 
without upsetting anybody, transform the politics of, of Rome without without upsetting um, people too too seriously. Um, essentially, what has happened is an oligarchic system known as the Republic, which fancied itself as, as democratic, but really kept power within quite a narrow um, group of, of elite families. That has collapsed under the weight of the growth of the empire. And Augustus has come along, simplifying it somewhat, but has come along and has created a a new version of administration and politics within Rome, which shares enough of what had gone on before to be acceptable to the elite of, of Rome, but is also much better designed to, to, to run the empire. Now, for convenience, we describe Augustus as the first emperor of Rome. It is in his time, it's, it's a much less easy to define what Augustus is because there's this sort of constant negotiation with with old ways of doing things or existing ways of of doing things so what we have as augustus's reign comes to an end is a kind of a more or less stable system which has never been very clearly defined when something like that approaches you know the end of of the life of of, of somebody like augustus it becomes potentially fairly fairly tricky because, of course, the succession is then tested. Is, is this going to carry on into the future? Yes, indeed. And can you please describe the cultural life of Rome under Augustus? Because that's what we're going to be focusing on when we talk about Ovid. I know that he was a great, he was one of the first great propagandists, wasn't he? I mean, he was really, really good at creating an aura of power and reputation around himself. Is that is that fair to say? That is fair to say. In his own right, Augustus is, is very determined to tell a set of stories about his role and his role in the kind of larger history of Rome to, to present himself as a as a kind of a natural development of of, of the history of, of Rome. He's also I mean, possibly the, from a literary point of view, the most um, important thing he manages to do is kind of persuade uh, a lot of extremely talented authors to share that essential vision. So you're, I mean, you, you can see Augustus doing things that we could describe as propaganda in the sort of architecture of, of Rome and the various very meaningful kind of um, structures that he put up around Rome. But what you also have are people like Virgil and and Horace and and, and poets like this who um, are not being told to do anything. They're not they're not being sort of forced to produce this stuff. But they well they do sort of feel a compulsion to 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 celebrate in subtle ways, but nevertheless celebrate this new this new development in in Rome. Now it's probably not coincidental. That that Augustus is 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 all about renewal, and there's also simultaneously this this amazing explosion of literary activity. But it's a fairly subtle connection. It's not Augustus isn't isn't a, isn't controlling everything in quite that sort of blatant. But he did um, create this uh, peace and stability, the, the Pax Augusta, and that I suppose enabled or freed up these people to live a much more cultural life because there wasn't so much um, emphasis on battles and is that right or not no that, that's a- a- absolutely fair and it's you know Ovid in particular is is very much a, an embodiment of of the Augustan peace which is sort of paradoxical since he he came a cropper from Augustus but yes undoubtedly it's um it's only in a context of peace that there's the scope for the kind of literary and architectural and, and general cultural activity that there that there is under Augustus. I think it's fair to say that the leading some literary figures of the Augustan period, I mean Ovid is one, but Virgil and, and Horace are uh, others, to a quite a strange degree they're they're focused on what's gone before rather than on the Augustan piece. Um, and what's what's motivating a poem like Virgil's Aeneid more than anything else is actually an awareness of the kind of the, the horrors of the civil war that has gone before. So so it's a combination of things. Yes, there's there's a there's a 
peace and an order which which in, encourages um, cultural activities but there's also a sense that we must not go back to that there's a high motivation that comes from from uh, the terrible things that Rome has uh, yeah learning the mistakes of the past as it were yeah 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 um, okay, so let's talk a bit more about Ovid now, specifically. And I believe that he was sent to Rome um, with his brother, and his father had high hopes for him um, to go into politics. And he was obviously very well born and part of the elite. And then I, I just want to read this little quote because I thought it was it's so charming and it's so it's a good, really good introduction into the personality of Ovid. And he basically says that he was sent to study and he was supposed to go into politics and law, I think specifically but it was just it was just no good it, it just didn't work he couldn't help it he was just a poet and he says I was affected by my father's words and leaving Helicon wholly behind me I attempted to write words freed from metre but of its own volition song found its fitting rhythm and whatever I tried to say was verse and I, do, I just think that's so charming it's such a a brilliant description and it and it really also shows us a bit his personality because he had a great sense of humor didn't he and he- yeah i mean he's uh, i mean he yes he has too good a sense of humor he's 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 the kind of guy who can't can't resist making a a, a, a joke but yeah i mean he he's uh, what we describe as a kind of a local elite um he's from a very very posh family in sort of central italy basically who are exactly the kind of people who are um sort of rising to power under Augustus or exerting a certain degree of sort of power under Augustus and Ovid had he pursued his the career that his father wanted for him would have been the first senator of his people the first Pilignian senator which in terms of sort of recent Italian history is is a both a very natural development a really significant process. Mm. Ovid throughout his life seems to be kind of in very very um, elevated circles, his 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 connections are the most significant people within Rome. But uh, as as you've quoted him as as saying, he pursues because his father asked him to do this the first steps in a public career, and law and politics are, are sort of inseparable really in in Rome. He's he seems quite good at them you know he's there aren't many things that he isn't good at he'd have been a good politician probably but it just doesn't it just doesn't click uh with him and he can't help writing in verse so um so he turns to poetry instead and his his dad says things like you know that homer did he make any money um (laughs) (laughs) it's brilliant it's the sort of conversation that you know a parent could could be having today their child says i want to be a stand-up comedian well um (laughs) And so so that that point you make about him being from this very small elite world, that was also very much the case for poetry. I mean, the poetry that he wrote was not being read by, you know, the the masses, by people on the street. It was very, very much for a very small elite circle. No, that's absolutely right. That the the what I've described as as an explosion of poetry in um, under Augustus remains art that's that's kind of appreciated by a by a fairly narrow group of of people it it requires of its readers very high education knowledge of greek as well as greek literature as well as 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 roman literature the kind kinds of sort of levels of culture cultural capital that isn't um generally widely available Ovid achieves, I mean, it's very hard to, to say, but Ovid seems to achieve yeah. slightly more, slightly broader penetration than than the most um, authors, actually. His poetry is, is performed on stage. Some of his poetry is performed on stage, he, he, he tells us. And if it's on stage, then suddenly there's you know there's more people watching it i mean it's, it's limited yeah. by the by the amount of um literacy that, that there is around still yes the, the 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 fundamental sort of situation is is a narrow group of kind of um literary sophisticated people who are reading it yes yeah and so the the, the his most famous works were um the metamorphosis which is a selection of stories, and they're mainly old stories, aren't they? Greek stories yep, yep, yep. Um, about transformation. Just describe his uh, a bit about his love poetry, and just so that we've got an idea of what he wrote and what he's actually famous for. Yes, okay. So he's, um, I mean, Ovid sort of regards himself when he when he when he talks about himself. He he talks about himself as um, an elegiac 
poet. And an elegiac poet really means a poet who's fundamentally about love poetry. Where he starts is with um, books of poetry that he calls the Amores, which means loves, which are kind of um, accounts of an alleged relationship or set of relationships um, he's had with a with a with a woman. It's 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 worth appreciating though that Ovid is. Um, I think it's fair to say, much more interested in poetry than he is in anything like love or, or anything um, anything of, of, of that kind. So this is highly sophisticated poetry, which is more um, sort of engaging with past love poetry than, any, than it is with any sort of actual relationship that he's, that he's necessarily having. Um, as he moves through his career, one way of looking at it is that he's He's kind of ringing the changes on that kind of fundamental um, love poetry theme that he that he started with. So he writes a, a a didactic poem, a teaching poem, where he sort of claims on the basis of his huge experience as a as a lover to be able to um, uh, to teach everybody else how to how to su- succeed. And um, the Metamorphoses is an epic poem, um, huge poem, fifteen fifteen book rolls long, um, which takes those old stories but mines them not only for stories of metamorphosis of of change but also for for the for the erotic um for love material which is the wrong way to do epic fundamentally it's it's a an elegiac way to do epic i'm sort of being a bit confusing here but it's 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 sort of bringing in a kind of an alternative way of doing poetry a love focused way of doing poetry into a much more serious genre of poetry and tradition of poetry okay um well let's go now to your year so i have to ask you this question that we ask all our guests if you could travel back in time to a year in history which year would it be it would be ad 14 and um just set the scene for us generally before we go to your first moment just give us a general idea of what is happening in ad 14 Okay. Well, if you're Ovid, what is happening in AD 14 is that you're you're sitting in a small town on the Black Sea, staring very glumly uh, out into space, um, basically because you've been exiled from Rome for for six years or, or or so. If you're in Rome, you have been ruled, in some sense or other, by Augustus for a number of uh, decades now but he's reaching the end of his life and some significant changes um, are coming along if you're in the empire in general well those changes in Rome those potential changes in Rome are potentially having um, a destabilizing effect on on things Augustus had achieved sort of great stability what's going to happen when Augustus isn't around anymore. And what, at this point, what are the limits of the empire? So how how big is the empire at this point? Can you just give us a vague idea? Probably, um, if you think of, of um, rivers in, in, in Europe at any rate, um, Rome sort of controls everything in Europe up to the Rhine and then the Danube, that, that, that's the, the boundary there. Um, they um, occupy a, a significant uh, amount of um, the east, um, blimey, uh, to, to the edge of Syria, somewhere, somewhere somewhere like that, Yeah. and a strip of North Africa as, <clears throat> as well. Um, most importantly, they control Egypt, which is a very wealthy uh, um, agricultural yeah. uh, space, which is which Augustus took control of as, as one of the first kind of acts of his his uh, position of power. And what about Spain? Because that was also very important agriculturally, wasn't it? One of the most important things that Spain produced was silver, uh, actually. So so okay. you couldn't uh, you couldn't coin your coins unless you had Spain. Yes, they 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 uh, have had Spain for a while. Um, the the Romans. It's where a lot of the um, activity against the Carthaginians took place a couple of centuries before. Actually. Yeah. Um. Great. Okay. So can you take us to your first scene, please? Yes. Okay. So the first scene is the funeral of um, Augustus. Um, now it's very hard to to date things very um, very specifically um, uh, given the the sources that we have or don't don't have, but Augustus has died in about the middle of August uh, AD 14, 
Uh, and sometime early in September, he is um, a, a very, very elaborate funeral is, is, is held for him. And how do we um, know about this funeral? Who, who wrote about What are the sources? There are various historical sources. Dio gives us um, quite a lot of material, but there are kind of little sort of fragments of, of pieces from, from various sources. And do we have any idea what, what, what would there have been a procession through the streets? Would he have been, where was he buried? Do we have any idea? Was he cremated? Right, yes, um, he, he was. And then buried in, in, in a, uh, a mausoleum that, that still exists and is actually, it's, it's just about to be reopened after uh, having been uh, renovated for a while in, in Rome, the mausoleum of Augustus. I mean, the main reason I would love to uh, go back to AD 14, there are other places I'd like to go to, but I would love to see the funeral because the funeral was the was an incredible spectacle yeah and can you describe what what you think you would see if you were there yes his body in a beer perhaps or or, or maybe in a, a closed coffin is processed through the streets and there are various things associated with the procession so we're told that there are signs kind of reminding people of, of the important legislation that he passed and um, representations symbolic representations of the countries that he'd conquered these are these are things that that have been imported from other important processions like the triumph which a triumphal general would have uh, would have undertaken and in fact it's important to say that augustus left instructions for his own funeral okay so everything that's happening is kind of according to his yeah. instructions the bit that really that that i'd love to see though is something that Augustus' funeral takes from traditional elite Roman funerals. Elite families, elite Roman families had in the, the kind of public space of their house, in the atrium of their house, they had collections of wax masks taken yeah. during the lives of their ancestors, which were kind of kept in little kind of cupboards. And on festive occasions, the doors of the cupboards might be might be open. A bit like a modern photograph. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes, that, that's, that, that's right, actually. Although you don't, I was going to say that you, you don't often put kind of garlands on photographs. Or maybe you do, actually, I don't know. I, I don't wish to sort of tell people what to do with their photographs. <laughs> At a funeral, though, as the latest member of the family, as it were, was taken out as a, as a, as a body and processed through Rome, they would be preceded by actors wearing the masks of the ancestors, uh, the ancestors in setting chronological order and going in, in front of, of, of the, the newly dead person. And those actors would be wearing the clothes associated with the highest achievement of those ancestors. Clothing in Rome is, is very kind of status coordinated. So um, if you're a censor, you wear, wear a particularly sort of spectacular uh, toga. If you're, if, if you're a triumphal general, similarly, if you're a senator, blah, blah, blah. And all of these guys would be dressed up like that and would be moving in a, a carriage uh, ahead of the uh, corpse. And it's clear that, I mean, it's clear from something that Pliny the um, Elder says, who's an encyclopedist who, who sort of preserves lots of kind of interesting pieces of information. He says that whenever anybody in a family dies, the whole family is present, meaning everybody that's ever existed in the family is there. OK, so elite funerals in general are kind of wonderfully weird. I mean, we think of the Romans, we tend to think of the Romans as sort of deeply practical people who built aqueducts and roads and and, and beat up sort of uh, Celts and stuff. Um, here's the Romans in some sense think believing that the ancestors are present whenever one member of the family dies. Now, that, that's elite, elite um, funerals in general. What Augustus does with funerals of his own family but then leaves instructions for his own um, family is that it's not just his own family that are present but potentially all the great people that have ever been in Rome. We see reference to uh, Pompey uh, the Great who is a kind of distant relative of Augustus so you can kind of argue that but he's he's there. Romulus is is there the first uh, first king of Rome and I'm just in imagining the experience of watching this procession through the streets because it's like the entire history of Rome is kind of reanimated and moving moving through 
Now, one final thing. What has to happen at a, a funeral is that a, uh, a laudatio, a kind of praising um, speech, has to be delivered over the uh, body of the dead person. Effectively, when you're delivering, whoever has the draws the short straw of having to deliver that um, uh, oration is delivering it to the dead man, but also or the dead person, because it could be women as well, and to the ancestors. And the speaker talks about the achievements of the dead man, but also talks about the achievements of the ancestors as well, but is talking to those ancestors and is presenting himself as the next instalment of the family. So there's kind of huge pressure on that guy. Extraordinary. Yeah. And also so um, sort of explicit and, and it must have been so competitive with these all these different families and who had the most illustrious people and yeah, yeah no absolutely and 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 it's very sort of much like augustus to be sort of doing something that's terribly terribly traditional you're sort of putting up a big advertisement saying i'm just like you guys you know i'm i'm, I'm as roman as as you come there's nothing sort of radically different about about me but at the same time having to prove that he's more significant than yeah doing it bigger and better than and to, and... to, to be the be the top do you think he wrote his own Laudatio? Um, there is some suggestion that he did that, yes. He was a bit of a control freak, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and also what, one sort of thing that happens after his funeral is, is that his raised gesta, his account of his, his own um, achievements, are put up on in, in, front, of his, um, in front of the mausoleum. Um, and they, they don't survive there anymore, but, but um, the, the texts survive in, in Ankara, actually, in, in, in Turkey. So, yeah, he, it's, it's not just self-obsession. I mean, the Romans are deeply self-obsessed. They're, they're yeah. deeply obsessed with, with um, ensuring that they're remembered. But he knows that on his status depends the continuation of this, this arrangement of that he's, yeah. uh, that, yeah. that he's uh, established. That's a really fascinating insight into the sort of psychology of the Roman mind. So now let's go to your second scene, which is very, very far away from Rome. Rather sad scene. Um, what, what, what are we, what are we going to look at? Who are we going to meet? We're, we're, we're now meeting poor old um, Ovid, um, who's, who's, uh, as I, I've mentioned, is, is off on the Black Sea in a, a town called um, Tommy, which is now Constanza in, in uh, Romania, um, which. Um, was probably a you know a perfectly pleasant um, little town as as things go, but when you're Ovid and you've been the toast of Roman society, uh, and you've enjoyed this the remarkable cultural uh, life of 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 Rome, Tommy is the ultimate backwater. I should explain what he's what he's doing there as as well, although it's it's a it's it's a fairly complicated. Um, story. Um, Ovid has been um, exiled. He's been sent out of Rome by um, Augustus, um, and we don't we don't know in detail. We don't know all the things that that caused his exile. He talks about two things um, that got him exiled: um, a song and a mistake. And um, the song is is the um, Ars Amatoria. I mentioned this earlier as the kind of teaching poem. Uh, where he teaches people how to how to um, have love affairs, which if you take it very very seriously, uh, which is a slightly unfair thing to do, but if you take it very very seriously, is highly immoral and 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 terrifically contradictory of um, moral legislation that Augustus has put quite a lot of emphasis on. Augustus is all about sort of taking Rome back to its 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 pristine origins, you know, and, and Ovid isn't really isn't really singing from the same same hymn sheet. I think it's probably fair to say. There's also that's the the poem the Ars Amatoria is part of it, but he's done something else as well. Ovid has has done something that has offended Augustus, and we don't know what it was. And he isn't really telling us what it is. He kind of encourages us to sort of wonder what it is, but but he he won't give um, information which suggests that it would be too embarrassing for Augustus if he if he if he did so. And any, at any rate, um, in in um, in punishment for this, um, Augustus sends him to the back of beyond, and he stays there for the rest of his 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 life. And the, he carries on writing, <clears throat> doesn't he? And he tries to persuade all his um, influential friends to get him recalled, but that, that doesn't work. Can you just talk a bit about his 
his poems because it, it, the way he writes changes, doesn't it? He 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 stops writing happy things and starts writing very sad poems and letters. No, um, absolutely. He's he, he's his 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 first kind of um, collection of exile poetry is called the Tristia, which means the sad things. You know, so he's uh, he's he's clear about uh, his uh, psychological state. Um, he does write quite a lot of other things in in in. Um, exile he kind of works on certain poems that he's 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 written before but the kind of um core activity is um a series of books the tristia first of all a few books of of, of those um and a book is a book book roll kind of standard uh, length yeah. of a, an ancient uh, book of poetry and then after the tristia collections described as um epistolae ex ponto letters from the from the black sea now, within those two sets of collections, um, he does quite a lot of pleading directed at uh, Augustus um, to, to, to forgive him and to let him come back again. Over time, he starts to recognise really that he's not going to get back to Rome. That isn't going to happen. So you, you, you find more of him just saying, please, please let me go somewhere else. I, I, I don't like this, um, this, this, this place, which is one of the things that one reason I want to go to Tommy in AD 14 is to discover what's so bad about this. But um, the in the, the epistolite Ponto are particularly interesting from a kind of historical point of view. Because in the Tristia, he's not generally naming anybody uh, apart from um, Augustus. In the Epistolae ex Ponto, generally, he's writing letters to named individuals. Um, and we can see in more detail the efforts he's making to persuade people to just make his life a little bit, um, a little bit uh, more, more pleasant. Yeah. And isn't there quite a lot of uh, because the, we don't have very much um, biographical information about Ovid, um, and you have to kind of eke it out of his poems. And it, it, there's there's a, a bit more in the later books, aren't there, than the earlier ones? Yes, and, th and there's one poem in particular, the Tristia, which is without which we'd really be struggling to to know very much about Ovid's life um, at all. It's a it's a biography he, he gives at the end of of, of one of the uh, of one of the books, but um, in a more subtle way. The kind of connections that he has that, that, that are kind of betrayed in the Epistolae ex Ponto really sort of confirm his 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 kind of social status in in Rome, you know, who right. he knows and what, what his what his circle um, uh, is. Uh, yeah. Um, in, in the the fourth the the last book of the Epistolae ex Ponto was probably never published um by oh sorry obviously was published because we have it but not published by Ovid himself so it, it's probably you know things that were left by him that were collected together and they cover quite a we can sort of date some of them and they cover quite a lot of spread of uh, of, of time yeah um but there you know for example four of the poems are addressed to one of the consuls for AD 14 Sextus um Pompeius and there's quite a lot of um, reference to a, a character, Germanicus, who's who's a very important figure who um, we'll probably talk more about uh, yeah. later. Who's 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 connected with uh, with uh, with the royal family, and you get a sense of who Ovid can talk to, who he can't to talk to. Yeah. You know how how much power he has to influence people, how much he doesn't. It must be strange for someone like you, who obviously, you know, st has studied Ovid in such depth, and you, you must feel like you, you, you know him a bit because of the way he writes. You, you, he's one of those poets you can really hear his voice. But then at the same time, there's so many mysteries and gaps about, you know, in, in your knowledge of what ha actually happened in his life. That must be a, an interesting contrast no that's that's absolutely right and and particularly particularly in the in the exile poetry i mean he of, of it's unusual in his earlier poetry for for sort of flaunting himself himself you can't read the metamorphoses for example the big epic poem on change without being acutely aware there's a really clever poet that's 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 writing all of yeah. this you know um you get into the uh, exile and he's he's still a very clever poet but he's he's a very depressed um individual yeah. indeed and you're learning so much more um a, about him directly there you know, explicitly in that poem in the in the tristia but but also you're you, to an unusual degree you're um 
you're seeing the psychology of a an ancient poet ancient poets don't tend don't tend to divulge too much uh, uh, about themselves this is very kind of artificial poetry but Ovid in exile is is something of an exception to that yeah another point to make though is that I mean, I, I love the last book of of, of the Epistolae ex Ponto. It's such like a range of of material, but also such fabulous examples of carefully created representations of his own psychological state. This is never just Ovid sort of you know just blurting it out, blurting it out, and expressing himself in this poetry. But it is, in a number of occasions, very very powerful dramatizations of of terrible trauma it, it is for a for a roman of his standing suddenly to be sent to this place sort of far from far from uh, from anything he's experienced before hello it's artemis at travels through time we're incredibly proud to be partnering with jordan lloyd and Colorgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colorgraph.co. At colorgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colorization work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colorized photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Yeah, I mean, he was a mesmerising writer, wasn't he? His ability to create scenes in your head. Well, let's go to your third scene, which is another quite fairly long journey, isn't it? Um, Where are we off to next? Right, yes, we're we're sort of heading from the Black Sea um, uh, along the Danube and then skipping a bit and going up the the Rhine. We're going to the the military camps on the Lower Rhine, so what would today be um, sort of um, Western Germany. And what's, um, what's happening here is the armies are responding to the news that Augustus has has died. And um, who's in charge? Um, who, who's who's the leader of this legion or part, part of the Roman army? Yeah. OK, so first of all, what, what, what are we talking about uh, here? We're talking about um, eight legions. Mm-hmm. Um, so about roughly 40,000 men or, or, or something in that um, vicinity who are guarding this critical boundary of the Roman um, Empire along the, the Rhine. Um, and the man who's in charge of them is somebody called uh, Germanicus, who I've uh, mentioned already, uh, but now a bit more detail um, on him. Germanicus is, um, or Germanicus is um, the heir to the throne um, if we can call it a throne, that's a little bit um, anachronistic. Um, but the heir to power once Tiberius has taken over from Augustus. So Tiberius is the emperor that takes over from or, or Augustus at this at this point. And Germanicus, Germanicus is uh, focus on one way of pronouncing his name. Germanicus is 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 the heir to um, Tiberius. An indication of his significance. Is that he's been given control of these um, these uh, armies because, as the commander of this bunch of soldiers, this number of soldiers, he's in a position of of enormous power potentially. And is this the sort of biggest hotspot on the whole frontier of the empire? Is this where there there are the most problems? And who is who are causing the problems? Tribes of Germanic people. Yeah, I mean, roughly speaking, yeah. I mean, the Danube border and the and the Rhine border, but in particular the Rhine border is is a is a is a hot hot spot. Um, yeah, I mean, where where Ovid is 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 a bit of a hot spot as well. That's that that's something that he. Uh, yeah, he complains about that too, doesn't he? Quite yeah. a lot, and for a long time we didn't really be, be, believe him, but then actually 
yeah the evidence is quite strong that it was quite a violent place to be um but yes um the 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 place where the soldiers were concentrated and needed to be concentrated in particular are along the the rhine border and it's the germanic tribes that are the um the issue uh here it, very recent experience bad bad stuff has happened to the to the Romans in this um, neck of the woods, literally neck of the woods. Uh, one forest, the Teutoburg um, forest in AD 9, a Roman army has been wiped out by Germans. So it's a it's a, a border to be uh, that needs to be uh, protected because if it isn't protected, um, the the Romans are convinced for some reason that um, that um, peoples from the north will cross over and not just take over the rest of the empire but invade um italy as well which kind of happens um periodically in uh, in in roman history and what's the connection between germanicus the man who's in charge and germany can you just clarify that it, it's it's quite interesting actually he he has that name because his dad um was very successful in being violent against the uh, the germans so he actually inherits that that name but also in a sense kind of earns it himself because he also um has has done a lot of um of fighting in the in the vicinity of well in in that kind of area and and doing i mean rome when its legions have been um destroyed suffered obviously suffered obvious things but suffered a colossal loss of face as as well and a lot of what germanicus has been doing in recent uh, times is kind of restoring roman status over the over the over the border in a sense kind of earned that name um for himself and are the tribes who are causing all these problems are they the the are they anything to do with the are they goths because you know we think of when the roman empire finally sort of collapses in that part of the world it's very much the goths and the Allens and the vandals are they this is the point where i i sort of say listen i just emote in front of literary text don't i <laughs> sorry but um i th- th- those are sort of later um developments and later later movements um uh, i i think but there is a, a a kind of a complex group the, the roman complex kind of collection of of of, of, of tribal uh, groupings uh, yeah. that can periodically be united under people like Arminius who's the one that wins the the, the battle in AD 9 in, yeah. into a kind of a, a coherent coherent group that that might kind of threaten the settled areas beyond the uh, beyond the Rhine yeah and did Germanicus become emperor after no Tiberius? because uh he he died he died young and he, he in battle uh, very unclear how he he he, he did uh, die it's one of the problems in antiquity that because they didn't really understand you know epidemiology no. and the rest no. of it then they could always um, kind of imagine that somebody had been poisoned well probably quite a lot of them were poisoned you know who knows but yes there, there, there's there's quite a high possibility yeah G- germanicus and um tiberius are are um uh, you know have have a an interesting relationship i mean germanicus is the heir to tiberius and he's the adopted son of um um tiberius as as well but there's a certain kind of tension there is uh, when he dies in um 1819 there's sort of suspicions that um that foul play uh, had a had a role, role to play not 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 clear that it did so he doesn't become emperor. His son becomes uh, emperor, a guy uh, known as Caligula. Oh, of course, yes. Whose who's, who's nickname Caligula comes from, from the fact that he's the kind of darling of the troops in, in Germany. And he, he has little um, Caligai, he has little um, military hobnail boots. Oh, I never knew that. Aw- awfully cute until he becomes emperor. And then Germanicus's brother... Claudius also becomes emperor. So Germanicus is a really significant figure who doesn't actually achieve that kind of power himself because he doesn't he doesn't survive uh, long enough i wonder if he would have been a better emperor than his son I, would it, he's one of the, i mean something that kind of regularly happens in 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 roman history i mean amongst romans as as well thinking about it is is what if you know um and yeah. and germanicus was regarded as you know the the perfect emperor that we never never had there's there's yeah. an issue on the with the rhine armies though because the reason why i've sort of gone to the rhine armies is they're mutinying essentially because they after they've heard that augustus has has died and germanicus is is there now they're mutinying for all kinds of different reasons they're they're mutinying because you know conditions are not great um in the army and because you know they 
the armies are essentially controlled by the emperor. So what's going to happen to us now that Augustus has, has gone? The armies are a peculiar thing, though. They're filled by people who are you know, some of the most um, socially kind of insignificant people within a very hierarchical system in Rome. As a collective, though, they have immense power and they yeah. and they know what power they have. And there are strong hints during the mutinies and in the accounts of the um, mutinies that one of the things that the armies have in mind is that they may, might be able to make Germanicus emperor. They might uh, place Germanicus or replace Tiberius with Germanicus. So one of the things that Germanicus is doing out there is saying, I am strictly loyal to Tiberius. Don't ever suggest um, that anybody has uh, the right to be um, the, the leader of Rome uh, than, um, than Tiberius. That's so interesting. And would that have been, you know, the sort of everyday soldiers or was it the, the, the you know, the sort of next echelon up in the army, the, the officers? Or was it all of them? Were they kind of all united in this idea of mutinying and making um, Germanic? The, the the mutiny we 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 associate the kind of the mutiny with with the with the common um, soldiers and and the 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 sort of complaints that they have uh, a lot of them are about are about kind of the brutal conditions that that uh, they suffer from the the higher ranks. Um, so we have wonderful and it's wonderful it's horrific actually but a <laughs> reference to a, a centurion who had a name um Cado Alteram, which means give me another um which um it, which he got because he was always kind of breaking the stick with which he beat soldiers so he needed another one to, to beat them with and would they have been italians mainly or would they have come from all over the empire the, the legions are are roman citizens yeah so yes they, they'd have been oh, wow, okay. in in the main i mean there was a certain amount of um press ganging um but in the main it would have been a kind of a free process of kind of signing up to it as 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 well the legions are one part of the forces of of rome another part are auxiliaries which come from subject um peoples but what really matters um here is that legionaries um roman citizens are mutinying and so they i mean they have a, in a way a similar problem to ovid in that they have been sent far away from rome um to the you know the back of beyond where things are not civilized and I often imagine that what it would have been like to be a Roman, you know, soldier sent from Rome to, I don't know, Hadrian's Wall or something and have to live in the freezing cold and pouring rain with revolting food. And, you know, it would have been, you know, traumatic and with all the sort of uh, battles and violence on top of that. I, th I think that's right. I mean, actually, a lot of the people on on um places like um hadrian's wall were auxiliaries so you had to kind of dutch people kind of um okay so it wasn't so bad not such a but no no you're right absolutely right i mean it, it, it's a it's an interesting question what you know what what are the pluses and minuses of being a member of being a legionary you, you get occasional glimpses i mean one of the things that i'd, I'd like about visiting a um you know a, a legionary uh, camp in ad 14 is it is that you you're you're not seeing the elite anymore you're you're seeing some of the ordinary people yeah. and in the historical sources which are sort of the ancient historical sources which are obviously much more concerned with the elite generally speaking you you just get these glimpses of mutineers and and biographies of, of them and there's one of them whose name i will attempt to remember who's not actually that there are mutinies happening on the danube border as well but they're, they're they're kind of dealt with um um more easily and there's a character who's who's associated um with those as a kind of ringleader who's i think called percenius described by um tacitus uh if i remember rightly and he had been a um a leader of a theatrical claque in in rome so he'd been somebody who sort of led the um applause in um okay. in, in in sort of theatrical um yeah. uh, performances now it's a question how does this guy end up in the <laughs> army i mean he may have just been press ganged or, or something but i suppose what the army offered was regular pay the conditions might not have been um great at any particular time but what they expected and what they ultimately ultimately would get is um a certain limited period of service after which they were given a lump sum and and retired to a particular 
place and so there are there are colonies around the the place which are basically um uh, where where soldiers have been settled there is also the germans and extremely violent conditions and i'm not just referring to the to the sadistic centurions you know there are other people yeah. who want to do, do even worse to you so it i guess tells you tells you something about the economic conditions of the ordinary person in rome that they were yeah. kind of prepared to undertake this kind of uh, life absolutely and of course you know for ovid living in rome you know in those very elite surroundings and living in a beautiful house and eating lemons that had been sent up from the Amalfi Coast and that kind of thing. That would have been lovely, but for the normal Roman people, it would not have been anything like that anyway. So. And, and, and just going back to Ovid for a, for, for, for a second, that that's where he finds himself. I mean, so Ovid, Ovid complains a lot um, in his poetry I've, I've suggested this already that that you know it's, it's terrifically violent around around here you know i mean i've been threatened my life and people used to say oh it's just kind of laying it on a bit but there's um there's good inscriptional evidence quite recent inscriptional evidence of quite how unstable the part of the world where he was um uh, was um and it seems to me that one of the things that augustus was doing um, by sending Ovid to um, Tommy was taking somebody who was kind of taking the peace that Augustus had established for granted, you know, being a little too relaxed, um, being too much himself, not listening to what Augustus um, wants to be said, taking that person and basically relocating him to a war zone. There is something quite equivalent in to where Ovid is, where Ovid of all people has been sent to in Tommy and where um, uh, Germanicus um, is, is, is doing his best to calm down these um, mutinies that have, uh, that have uh, broken out. Yeah, fascinating. So there's just one more question that I have to ask you, uh, and that is if you could have picked something up from one of these scenes and brought it back with you to the present day as a sort of memento of your... Um, visit to 14 AD what would it be do you think uh, easy no wax mask um such as were worn by these um these actors representing the ancestors um has has survived and and no clear representation of what even what they looked like has has survived so if by whatever means i could not not only kind of filch a um uh, a wax mask of of somebody romulus maybe that'd be quite nice uh, yeah. and 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 could kind of bring it back to the present day that would be great actually yeah that's a very very good choice it's been a really interesting discussion and i think we've really got some good insights into roman the roman mind really really interesting thank you very much Llewellyn. thank you very very much indeed for having me that was me violet moller speaking to professor Llewellyn morgan the other day a very short introduction to ovid is out now and it's a fascinating starting point for anyone wanting to find out more about the legendary poet and of course if you'd like to discover more about this episode and see some lovely images just head to our website tttpodcast.com Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.